Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters concluded his direct examination of the defendant's former law partner, Ronnie Crosby, and Jim Griffin began his cross-examination of the witness. In this installment, we conclude our review of Mr. Crosby's testimony and begin our look at the testimony of gunshot forensics expert, Megan Fletcher. That's all coming up right after the break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It is the late afternoon of February 7th, 2023, day 10 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Jim Griffin was asking Mr. Crosby about his actions and observations upon arriving at the Moselle Road property on the night of the murders. As we begin today, Griffin moves on to ask the witness about his observations of Alex Murdoch's behavior before and after the murders. I think you mentioned in, in one of your interviews with Sled that Alec had some annoying quirks, and one of them, he, he would just take phone calls in the middle of the deposition. He would. Uh, would he take, would he get phone calls from his family, Buster, Maggie, and Paul, and drop everything and take the calls? I've witnessed that. Was that frequent? Yes, he would do it in depositions. He would do it in the middle of a conversation. And, and, and not with them, but def, definitely with them, even in partner meetings and stuff, he would take a call and walk out of the room. Sure, sure. You had mentioned in your testimony that, that when, you, when you were asked by this second year about the Ferris fee issue, that, that really your concern was not that Alec was diverting fees, but he was trying to shelter fees from being disclosed in the civil case. Is that an accurate statement? Well, let, let's make sure definitionally we're talking about the same thing. My concern was not that he was stealing because I trusted him. I had no reason to believe that he was stealing. It was the latter that what she conveyed to me was he was wanting to hide some fees or hide hide money somehow. I don't remember it being said that it was uh, like I heard earlier in Maggie's name. It was just that he was going to uh, take the fees from Chris Wilson's account so there wouldn't be any record is the way I understood it in our trust account. Right. And you said, F, no, we're not doing that. Those were my words. After the murders of Maggie and Paul, did you, um, the, the immediate aftermath and, and going forward a few months, did, did Alec come to the office much? It was, it was sporadic, but I knew that he was having a lot of uh, trouble sleeping. You know, Kiss lost his, his family and his father, and him and his father were very close. Um, we were aware that, or had understanding that he was taking um, like medicine to try to help him sleep and, and, and maybe for anxiety and just, you know, the, the normal things that you 
would expect there. So even when he came, I would walk in his office and he'd be falling asleep in his chair. He'd be sitting in there, you know, which was evident to me that he, he wasn't sleeping well. And so I know um, Ms. Seconder mentioned pills earlier that, that he was taking. That That's what we knew he was he was taking because he couldn't sleep at night. He'd be up at all hours of the night. And, and did you notice changes in his physical appearance, losing weight? Yes, he, 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 he was losing weight. I don't think he was eating um, very well by all, all reports. And, and I, I guess let's sort of go back. The, the night of June 7th, the morning of June 8th, was, I mean, what was his demeanor? Well, his uh, demeanor is that he was, he was upset. I, I, I could tell that. And he, you know, you see him cry? Yeah, we, we, we cried together. I mean, he kept telling me, especially to me, he kept telling me how much, how much, uh, how much Paul loved me. And, you know, every time he would say that, we would, uh, it would, would be emotional. I mean, and then he, he told me that several times over the, the next few days. It was just almost be how he would start a conversation when with me would be to talk about Paul. And then um, did he did he spend a lot of time with, with Buster down at Maggie's parents in Somerville, do you know? I, I knew they, they were. Can you give me the time frame? So it starting in June. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I know he and Maggie's parents uh, had a good relationship. I recall because in, in some of this, uh, I remember seeing some texts between he and I that he was down there. I don't remember. I, well, they're, they're dated. You, I'm sure you have them. Um, right. And he told me he was down with uh, Maggie's parents. Uh, it was one of the days in that time immediately following the murders. Right. And then um, at, at one point in time around, I don't know if it's 4th of July, did, did he come to your place by boat or... Do you remember that? And it would, I don't can't say that it was on the Fourth of July, but I remember uh, his brother Randy and, and and his wife. I had invited them to my house, you know, for the Fourth, and you know, for spend, and, and they had, uh, you know, something that, that those of us in the law firm do a lot to spend time on the weekends uh, together, and, and um, they were there, and I'd ask uh, Ellen to to come over, and he and Buster came by boat from Edista. And and Alec carrying a gun with him on the boat, was he not? I, yeah, I, yes, he had a, 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 a gun in a, uh, what I want to call a shopping bag, uh, uh, like a cloth-type you know, shopping bag, not one of those plastic ones. Had, had you ever seen Alec carrying a gun around before for protection, before the murder? No. At some point in time, Alec and Buster and, and the family put out a, a reward, did they not, for capture of who, uh, tips for whoever um, would lead to the arrest of whoever killed Maggie and Paul. Do you remember that? I, I, I do remember uh, that and, and, and who all was involved in, in, the, in the funding of it. I, I don't know, but there was a uh, reward, I believe, was a, I know a reward was put out. And the, and the firm agreed to administer it if there was anyone step forward. We did. That's all I have here. Jim Griffin concludes his cross-examination of Ronnie Crosby, and Prosecutor Creighton Waters rises for a brief redirect examination of the witness. Firm have to ever pay anybody for that reward? No. You're asked a lot of questions about your interactions and relationship with Alec Murdoch. You've known Alec Murdoch how long? Well, I, I, I guess a total of 25 years or so. Did you really know Alec Murdoch? Jim Griffin objects. 
Judge Clifton Newman asks Creighton Waters to clarify the question before ruling on the objection. What's the question? Did he really know Alec Murdoch? Did he know Alec Murdoch? Did he really know Alec Murdoch? Yes. I sustain the objection. Thank you. Nothing further. And, with Judge Newman sustaining the defense's objection, Prosecutor Waters concludes his redirect, and Ronnie Crosby steps down from the witness stand. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. After a brief break, the state calls forensic expert Megan Fletcher to the stand. Ms. Fletcher appears to be in her 30s. She has long brown hair and wears a navy blue blazer over a black blouse. The defense team was overruled in their objection to Ms. Fletcher's taking the stand. Specifically, they sought to exclude her testimony regarding gunshot residue discovered on a blue raincoat found at the home of Alex Murdoch's mother, Libby. The defense contended that there was no foundation for linking that raincoat to the defendant. But, Judge Clifton Newman ruled that the question of whether the raincoat could be connected to Alex Murdoch was a matter of fact, not law, and therefore an issue for the jury to decide. Prosecutor John Metters begins his direct examination of the witness by asking about her background. Ms. Fletcher states that she grew up in Ohio and received a master's degree in forensic science with special training in gunshot primer residue analysis. After finishing school, she moved to South Carolina to join the state's law enforcement division as a trace evidence analyst. Metters then asks Ms. Fletcher about the specifics of trace evidence analysis. So tell us some more about trace evidence and your training and your background and what you loved about it. So trace evidence is a type of evidence that you can't typically see with the naked eye. So you need a microscope or other types of instrumentation to be able to detect it. For trace evidence in the forensic services laboratory at SLED, we consider explosives, fire debris, fibers, glass, uh, gunshot primer residue, paint, fibers, uh, physical fit analysis, pressure sensitive tape, and general physical and chemical unknowns, all different types of trace evidence. Specifically in the field of gunshot primer residents, tell us about your training, um, your experience, and what has led you to this point where I'm going off you for an expert in just a minute. So in 2007, I started my career. I started my training at that point. I began an 11-month training program for uh, gunshot primer residue analysis. It's an in-house training program that consists of practical written and oral examinations in the theory of gunshot primer residue, as well as the instrumentation used to analyze that type of evidence. So, so what is it? Well, let's start with gunshot residue. Gunshot residue is everything that comes out of a gun when it's fired. That's the smoke, the soot, the flame, burned and unburned uh, gunpowder particles, but also something called gunshot primer residue. And that's what we're looking for at the trace lab at SLED. Gunshot primer residue particles are microscopic molten particles that contain the elements lead, barium, and antimony. They come from the primer uh, component of the cartridge. 
And can you explain some more? How do you how do you examine it? What do you do to determine if there's gunshot primer residue? Uh, so I believe that you've already heard about how gunshot primer residue is collected. It's collected using those uh, particle lifts with the sticky surfaces. Once I get those particle lifts in the lab, I will then examine them on a scanning electron microscope with an energy dispersive X-ray detector. Uh, so an SEM EDX. Now, what's the second thing you said? The SEM, and what did you say after that? Energy dispersive X-ray detector. What is that? Well, the scanning electron microscopes, a super powerful microscope. Uh, you might be used to a light microscope uh, that you might have used in school, and that might uh, magnify something around 400 times. The scanning electron microscope uses, uses electrons instead, and so we can magnify things 30,000, 50,000 times. The energy dispersive X-ray detector allows us to analyze a sample for which elements are actually present in the sample. So the SEM component, the microscope component, allows us to see a sample and analyze the shape and the morphology of a given sample. But the EDX component allows us to see uh, what elements are actually present in that individual sample. Now, when I first started years ago, we were just looking for the three elements. How has that changed over the years in your specific field? So currently, we are looking for characteristic particles of gunshot primer residue. It's a singular particle that contains all three elements of lead barium and antimony. It can't be a particle that contains one or two of those elements. It has to contain all three of those. And that didn't used to be the case, did it? Uh, no, sir, it did not. So it's got to contain all three of them? Yes, sir. Before you'll clarify it as what? It has to, it has to be microscopic. It has to be molten. And it has to contain lead barium and antimony in order for me to report it as characteristic of gunshot primer residue. And I know everybody knows except me, but what's molten? So molten uh, appears to be rounded in shape. It, it looks like it underwent high heat and pressure. Uh, lots of times they're spherical, so like a ball, but sometimes they might look like a football. Just have to have like a rounded shape to the edges. How does evidence get to you, forensic scientist Megan Fletcher? How does it actually come to you? Uh, there's different circumstances, but typically evidence is submitted um, from local agency or SLED, and it's submitted through the evidence control department. The evidence control department assigns it a unique lab number, and each item of evidence uh, is assigned an item at that time. It then is brought up to the trace lab by either myself or another analyst or a technician, and then it goes through the process of inventory and then analysis. How long have you been doing this? Over 15 years. You love your job? I do. And um, how many um, analysis have you performed in the field of, well, in trace evidence to start with? Over 1,500 cases, samples, well over 3,000. And have you been offered in courts of record of this state and other states perhaps as an expert in the field of trace evidence and gunshot primer residue? And have you been so accepted in courts of record of this state as an expert in trace evidence and gunshot primer residue? Yes, sir, 49 times. Your Honor, this time the state of South Carolina would offer forensic scientist Megan M. Fletcher as an expert in the field of trace evidence to include gunshot primer residue. You heard making it 50 times, Your Honor. <laughs> and, and we thank you. After Judge Newman qualifies Ms. Fletcher as an expert, Prosecutor Metters asks the witness to explain to the jury how gunshot residue evidence can be retrieved. On a live, well, a live person, human being, yes, blood, blood flowing. Yes, sir. Is there a period of time after which SLED's guidelines say we won't um, 
try to determine if there's gunshot fire arrest on somebody? Yes, sir. What, what, what is that? Beyond six hours, we will not analyze a GSR kit from a living individual. And the reason that we will not analyze that is because in-house studies as well as peer-reviewed published studies have shown that gunshot residue so readily transfers and so red is so readily removed uh, around four to six hours that beyond six hours, it couldn't be tied back to an initial incident. What's the common sense answer why that's, you won't do it after six hours? Uh, so if you shoot a gun, as soon as you put that gun down, you essentially start to remove those gunshot primer residue particles. They aren't destroyed, but you're simply transferring them to other objects. You might be putting your hands in your pocket. You might touch a steering wheel. You might wash your hands, and that would remove most, if not all, of the particles. So beyond that four hours, you're really looking at the total removal of those particles. So if you didn't wash your hands, just, just, just everyday living or touching could... After over four hours, you wouldn't want to, or six hours, I think you said it is now. Six hours is our policy, but an in-house study with, um, with controlled participants where we informed them that they weren't allowed to wash their hands and told them to basically stick to clerical work, we really saw that drop off around four hours. Uh, if you did wash your hands uh, and you know somebody washed their hands, they told you, hey, I washed my hands, would you test it? We would. But would you expect most of them to be gone at that point? From washing your hands? It depends on how well you wash your hands. Okay. Um, we expect most of it to be gone, but we've seen it to still be present even after somebody's washed their hands. And, and, and you did a little bit, but if you can do a little bit more for me, gunshot primer residue, is there a certain, I mean, how do you determine, is, it, is there a certain distance, vicinity, shooting? I mean, what are you looking for in determining whether gunshot residue is present and whether someone was in the vicinity to get it? So really what we're trying to determine when we're looking for gunshot primer residue is, one, were they in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm? Were they shooting a firearm? Or is it simply transfer? And in most cases, we can't determine whether it's vicinity, which includes shooting, or uh, simply transfer. Discharge? Vicinity, which just mean, are you close to it? Uh, yeah, so vicinity can be two to three feet to either side of the shooter and outwards of about 60 feet in front of the shooter. Discharge, vicinity, and transfer. What do you mean by transfer? Uh, you can get gunshot residue on your hands from an object that already has gunshot residue on it or from a person who has gunshot residue on them. So if somebody else shoots a gun and you shake their hands, you could get gunshot residue on your hand that way. You could also touch a recently fired or a dirty weapon and get gunshot residue on your hands that way. As he asks his next question, John Metters approaches Ms. Fletcher and shakes her hand. So if I was, if you had just fired the firearm and I came up to shake your hand, could I get it from that? That is possible. Okay. If I reached under to grab you to turn you, could I get it if you had been shot? with gunshot residue? Uh, so gunshot residue does travel with the path of the bullet, so we do expect to find it on victims who have sustained gunshot wounds. And around that gunshot wound specifically, we do expect to find uh, gunshot primer residue particles. So if you touch that area, there is the possibility of transfer. Once more, as Prosecutor Metters asks his next question, he approaches the witness and simulates wiping his elbow on her arm. And again, if you don't mind me touching you on the arm, if you had gunshot residue on your arm and I did that, could I get it? That is a possibility as well. And what's that called? So in that case, uh, that would be a secondary or tertiary transfer. Transfer? Yes. From one item to me? Yes, sir. All right. And the other way is if I fire the firearm? Yes, sir. 
And if I fired a firearm, where would you, where do you look for to see if somebody's fired a firearm with based on what they're wearing? Like if I was wearing this right now, fired something here, and you had this jacket, where would you look for? Sir, if I knew that that was what the, you were wearing uh, at the time of the shooting, we would sample from the right sleeve of that jacket, the right chest area of the jacket, the left sleeve of the jacket, and the left chest area of the jacket. We may also want to sample the tie because it's center on um, your chest and then the right side of your pants and the left side of your pants. And then your shoes are also a possibility. Why is that? I, because your shoes are also in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm. Sometimes we get results off of them, sometimes we don't. And would you test my hands? Uh, that would be the best evidence is the hands because the hands will allow us to link it to a specific incident within six hours. Whereas clothing, we can't tell you when it got there. And that's because on an inanimate object such as clothing, that gunshot primer residue is going to stay until it's actively removed. So you would have to brush it off, you would have to wash it off, you would have to do some activity to actually remove it from the clothing. And that was the next thing I was going to get into. You beat, beat me to it. So, But if I just shot and washed my hands off, potentially I could have washed it all, gunshot, primer, uh, gunshot primer residue off, correct? Correct. But on inanimate objects, and you just said it, and I apologize, how long in gunshot residue stay on? Uh, indefinitely, if it just, if you don't touch it, if you're not actively um, moving it around or washing it, it can stay until it's removed. And that's to say I'm dead, okay? Okay. Once again, John Metters moves away from the prosecutor's lectern and approaches Ms. Fletcher as he poses his next question. And I got shot a few feet. You shot me from Okay. Okay. I fall back. Would you expect to have gunshot residue on me? Uh, it depends on the firearm, but in general, yes. And why is that? Uh, so the gunshot primer residue comes out, a large majority of the gunshot primer residue comes out the muzzle of the firearm. And not only does it come out the muzzle of the firearm, but it also follows the path of the bullet. And so wherever that bullet's going, it, it's going to follow behind it. And the follow-up to that is, do, is it SLED's recommendation now? If you know, like me, I've been shot, do y'all test for gunshot or will you test for gunshot residue on a deceased person who you know has been killed with firearm? Uh, SLED will not test uh, on victims who have sustained gunshot wounds. Uh, and we have not been testing on those victims since January of 2022. And prior to that, was it your policy not to do that or recommend to local law enforcement agencies not to do that? We didn't have an official policy, but we were recommending it due to the lack of probative information that you could gain from it. And what do you mean by the lack of probative information? So, like I said before, gunshot residue can only put somebody in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm, or it could say that they transfer gunshot residue on them. So it's just putting gunshot crime residue on them. A victim's already of a gunshot wound has already been established to be in the vicinity to the discharge of a firearm, so it doesn't add any additional information to the case. Now, there's still other items like stippling, which you're not, do you know about stippling based in your field of expertise? That's not in my field no. of expertise. With that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of Megan Fletcher. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.